Let's pray. Father, we come once more before your throne, asking that you would meet us here this morning in your word, through your word, that you would work uh, the work you desire in us, that we would respond uh, with joy at the work you have accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, give us eyes to see and help us to exercise the faith we have uh, to believe and trust you. And Lord, those who are with us who may not know you, Lord, may you work the work of salvation in them. And may they, for the first time, rejoice that Christ has truly paid it all for them. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Today is a a special day for us. We are, as Christians, we are, of all people, the most blessed, most privileged, uh, the most joyful of any on earth because Christ is alive. Because He is risen, everything is well with us. And that is the bottom line truth. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. I want to think with you about the resurrection from the book of Romans, and I hope to convince you that everything really is well by faith, if you trust Him. Romans 4.25 is a powerful verse. It's just one short verse, but it's so packed full of truth that it'll take all of our time together this morning uh, to get our arms around this passage. It was the late president of Princeton Theological Seminary, Charles Hodge, who said that Romans 4.25 is a comprehensive statement of the gospel. It's sort of like the Bible in a single sentence. It's really actually not even a sentence. It's just a clause, not even a complete sentence. But in this little sentence, clause, we find the gospel in its entirety. And it is so dense, so packed full of truth that there's no way we'll be able to do it justice this morning. But my hope is that I, wanna, I want to set this passage before you because I want you to be able to see it in all of its splendor. And as a result, I want you to leave here convinced that the resurrection of Christ is the definitive proof that your redemption has been fully accomplished by Jesus Christ. And furthermore, all that God requires of you is to simply trust in the finished work of Christ. I want you to leave here convinced that God is not looking for you to pay off the debt you owe Him, but that He calls you to stop working and to rest in the reality that Christ has paid it all. And I want to argue from this passage... I think this is Paul's argument that the resurrection of Jesus was and is God the Father's definitive proclamation 
that the debt you owed because of your sin, that debt has been paid in full, that your redemption has been fully accomplished, and that the Father is satisfied. All of that is tied up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want you to go ahead and stand with me as we honor the Word of God and read. And I want us to really reach back in Romans 4, back to verse 13, and sort of get a running start at verse 25 together. Romans 4, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Verse 18, and hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. In being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. You may be seated. Now we're obviously parachuting into the middle of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome. So we have to get a little bit of context here. We're, we're sort of dropping into the middle of Paul's argument, which is a monumental argument, That the salvation of humanity is a work that God Himself has accomplished through Jesus Christ. That's pillar number one. The salvation of humanity is a work that God Himself has accomplished unilaterally through Jesus Christ. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two is that that work of salvation is to be received by faith alone. You can't work to get it. You can't win his favor. You simply are to look at the work he has accomplished and believe him, and that's how you were saved. That's Romans 1 to 4. And as Paul is 
bringing this argument to a crescendo in chapter 4, he lifts up the patriarch Abraham as the great example of what saving faith looks like. Really, not just of what it looks like, but also of what it means to be saved by faith in God alone. Abraham demonstrates what that is, and he also demonstrates what saving faith actually looks like, which is why Paul is using him as an example. So from Abraham's life, we see that saving faith is this, confidence in the Word of God. Saving faith is confidence in the Word of God. Or to put it another way, saving faith is to trust God. To put your confidence in Him. In His promises, in His Word, and in His work. That is saving faith. And that's the argument that Paul is making in verses 18 to 21. So let's look briefly at this. Verse 18 to 21. Let's start at verse 18. It says this. In hope... Against hope, he believed. Stop right there. The confounding statements, not crystal clear. So let's think about it. In hope, against hope, he believed. In other words, in spite of how hopeless Abraham's situation looked, Abraham continued to believe God. Now, what was Abraham believing God for? This is where you have to pull back your Bible history. The promise was that Abraham would be the father of many nations. And from Abraham's vantage point, that seemed like a hopeless situation. And in hope, he believed against hope. Essentially, from a horizontal perspective, it was hopeless that Abraham could be the father of a child. The reason for that is because he was very old, and his wife Sarah was very old, and so much they were so old, actually, that the Apostle Paul says something, I think, mildly offensive. Verse 19, and this is what he said. Without becoming weak in faith, he, Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's a little offensive. But Abraham is that old that he's, he's basically dead. And God comes to this man who's basically dead and says, all right, get ready. Uh, You're going to have a child. God had promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a child who would be the line from which the Messiah would come, Jesus himself. But at this point, it was a hopeless situation as Abraham evaluated himself. He looks at himself, this, God, I, I hate to break it to you, but it doesn't work this way. Um, I'm old, she's old, we can't do it. But faith, and this is what Paul is doing, he's lifting up Abraham here because this is what faith does. Faith fundamentally lifts its eyes off of itself and its own circumstances, and it looks onto the promise of God. That's verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God. So the contrast is when Abraham contemplated himself, This is hopeless. Yet, verse 20, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, 
he was able also to perform. Note that last phrase. What God had promised, he was able also to perform. Faith is assurance, confidence in the word, the promise, and the work of God. God had promised Abraham a child. God was able to perform it. Abraham believed it. Word and work. The word is the promise. The work of God is God's ability to bring it about. I'll just say, that's the big test of faith. You know the promise. You've got the promise. The question is usually, will God bring it about? And that's the fight for faith. Abraham had received this promise and he confidently believed that God was going to bring it about just as he said. Now, Paul's point here, back to our focus of our sermon here, Paul's point in lifting Abraham out of the Old Testament as the example of faith is this. This is Paul's point. When you trust God in the way that Abraham trusted God, Despite the odds, despite the circumstances, despite how you feel, despite your own self-reflection, when you trust God as Abraham did, verses 22 and 23 say that that type of faith is credited to you as righteousness. When you look at your circumstances and you think, this won't work. When you look at this your, yourself and you think, I'm far too sinful to be credited as righteous, to be saved. And yet you believe God because of His Word? That kind of faith is credited to you as righteousness. That's verses 22 and 23. And that really is the doctrine of imputation. It's the doctrine of imputation. It means this. By faith in the Word of God and the work of God, one's faith is counted or reckoned to you as righteousness. When you trust in the word and work of God, in God's calculation of you, you are, by faith, by your trust in Him, you are counted to be exactly what you should be before Him. When you trust in the promise, the word and the work of God, in God's estimation and calculation, you are credited You are viewed by Him as being exactly what you should be before Him. That's what it means to be righteous. You are, by faith, exactly what God wants you to be. Now in Abraham's case, he was called to believe the Word of God regarding the promise of children. The challenge for him, as I've mentioned, was that when he contemplated, verse 19, his own body, he was as good as dead. He was far beyond the biological capacity to have children. Yet, in the face of the odds, God called Abraham to believe this promise against all human hope. And Abraham believed, and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, the question for us is this. If Abraham was called to believe the promise that he would have a child, what are we called to believe in the 21st century? 
What is the promise that God has given us to believe today in order for us to be counted right before Him? That's the question. And that's what this passage, especially verses 23 to 25, are wanting to answer. It's the focus of these verses. Look with me at verse 23. Now, not for His sake only was it written that it was credited to Him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Abraham believed he would have children. You and I are called to believe in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. When we believe that, he counts us as right before him. And then in verse 25, Paul narrows the focus a degree more. And with this relative clause, he gives us a bit more information about what it is that we are to believe in order to be counted righteous. He's giving us more data, more information, so that we can fix our hope and our faith onto this God who has raised Jesus from the dead. And the first additional element that Paul gives us in verse 25, all right, we're, we're in verse 25. The first additional element he gives us to believe, or nuance, or clarification, is the first part of verse 25, 25a, and it says this. We are to believe in Jesus our Lord, the one who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Right? He who was delivered over because of our transgression. Now that is an indicative statement, meaning it's a statement of fact in reality, that you and I are called to believe and place our hope in. And again, it's, it's very jam-packed. It's a dense reality. So I want us to just sort of look at it phrase by phrase, word by word, okay? Verse 25a, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. First, he was delivered over. The he... It's clearly referring to Jesus, right? You see that? But who is responsible for the delivering over of our Lord? The word to deliver means to hand over or to betray. It's to place someone into the hands of another. That's what Judas did when he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the leaders of Israel. It's what Pilate did when he handed Jesus over to the mob. But most amazingly, it's what the Father did when he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Paul uses this exact same language in Romans 8, verse 32, when he says that God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. The Father was the one doing the action. He was the one delivering the Son over to the agony of the cross. And He did not spare Him, is what Romans 8.32 says. He didn't spare Him, meaning that He didn't save Him from the agony of the cross, but He actually and actively 
handed Jesus over for the very purpose of his crucifixion. Acts 2 verse 23 says that Jesus was delivered over, same language, delivered over according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So who then is the subject of the verb delivered over? Well, it's clearly God the Father. God the Father was the one who in His loving, wise plan wrote the story that the Son of God would die the gruesome death of crucifixion. It was the Father's loving plan that stood behind it all. It's the Father. The Father delivered Jesus over to be crucified. But we need to be clear. We know that Jesus was not a reluctant Savior. It was the Father's plan that stood behind the cross, but it was also the Son's loving ambition to die on the cross in the place of sinners. It was His love. His love to the Father and His love to us that drove Jesus to the cross. Luke 9.51 says that Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. That's another way of saying He was determined to do it. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And He knew what awaited Him in Jerusalem. It was certain death. To go to Jerusalem was to die. But nothing in heaven and nothing on earth could dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem to die in the place of sinners. He said in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down, I lay it down of my own initiative. It was the Father's plan, but it was the Son's joyful, willing delight to fulfill the Father's plan. Now, why then was Jesus delivered over? We know who, who delivered him over, the Father, but why? Why was Jesus delivered over? Well, the text is crystal clear, right? He was delivered over because of or for our transgressions. You need to feel the weight of that. He was delivered over for our transgressions. It's not complicated to understand. The reason that Jesus was crucified was because of your sin, your transgression. Not your neighbor's, although that's true, but you need to think of this in terms of your, your personal contribution to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Your sin was the cause of His being delivered up. It was your sin, your transgression that caused the Lord of glory to experience such a gruesome, humiliating death. And the necessity for this sacrifice really goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. And Paul is actually pulling from Isaiah 53 in this little section. Now listen to this. Listen to Isaiah 53. You can flip there if you want. Isaiah 53. I'm going to read several verses. But just listen for the echoes in Romans 4.25 from Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, 
a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. And listen to this, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was delivered over for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Verse 6, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered, who even gave it a thought that Jesus was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? But the Lord, Yahweh, was pleased to crush him. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now, there's no clearer description of the crucifixion of our Lord than Isaiah 53. And clearly what we see here is that Jesus was delivered over Again and again, the same theme. He was delivered over to bear the punishment, the guilt that God's people deserve to bear. And on the cross, this is staggering, on the cross, God the Father transferred your guilt onto Jesus. I don't know if you've thought of that before. I'm sure that most of you have, but I know that some of you are here and you've not considered the fact that your guilt, your sin was transferred onto the broad shoulders of Jesus Christ and He Himself bore the punishment that you deserved to pay. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, puts it this way. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That's Isaiah 53 in a phrase. That's what it means when Paul says, he died because of our transgressions. That's the meaning. But you should notice or note rather, the cross of Jesus Christ was not excruciating and humiliating simply because it was the most cruel form for a human being to die. No, the the cross of Christ was what it was because on the cross Jesus was bearing the wrath of the Father for the sins of all those who would believe in Him. It was the will of the Father to crush Him. Out of the anguish of His soul, 
he will see and be satisfied. Jesus, on the cross, bears your guilt and your shame on himself. That's why the hymn writer says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. He was the substitute. Jesus, on the cross, is the substitute for his people. He will be your substitute by faith. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There's a question as to what that cup is. What is the cup? The book of Isaiah, again, clarifies this. The cup is a cup of staggering, and it's called the cup of God's fury. It's the cup of His anger, the cup of reeling. It's the cup of God's wrath. And it was the cup that you were intended to drink. It was your transgression, your wickedness, your rebellion, your depravity, your sin that necessitated Christ drinking the cup of God's wrath. Now, you should feel the weight of that. If your conscience is awake to your own sinfulness, that should pierce you. That Jesus was crucified because of your transgression. But, you should also feel the weight of the cross, not just because Christ drank the cup, but you should also feel the counterweight, if you will, that the cross of Christ is the greatest manifestation of your depravity, but also of the love of God the Father. Feel the weight that your sin is this serious, that the Son of God had to leave heaven and die a gruesome death because of your sin, your white lie. He had to die for that. But feel the counterweight that the crucifixion is the manifestation of the love of God. Never will there be, in all of history, never will there be a greater manifestation of the Father's love for sinners like you and me. The cross is the great demonstration of the Father's love. It's the greatest sacrifice that's true. It demonstrates and shows us the magnitude of the payment necessitated by our sin. But it also demonstrates the love of the Father who planned and executed it all. There was no other way for sinners to be saved than for the spotless Lamb of God to leave heaven and come to earth and to be slaughtered in your place. The price had to be paid and only the perfect Son of God could pay it. That's what it means to be delivered over, that He was delivered over for our transgressions. Now here's the question. How do we know 
that Christ's payment on the cross, He paid the payment you owed, how do we know that Christ's payment was a sufficient payment? How can we know that Jesus actually accomplished the mission that the Father intended Him to accomplish? Well, that's what the second part of verse 25 is about. He was not only delivered over because of our transgressions, He was also raised because of or for our justification. And I take that phrase to mean this. That the resurrection of Jesus is the proof and the proclamation that Jesus has actually accomplished our salvation. The resurrection is the proof and the Father's proclamation that Jesus has paid the debt and He is happy with it. And I want to show you what I mean. This is the main idea of this whole sermon. 25b. He was raised because of our justification. By all appearances, the death of Christ was a failure. In fact, for three days, while Jesus was in the tomb, it appeared as if Jesus was just another failed Messiah. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, there was a respected Pharisee, a teacher named Gamaliel, And in that section, he recounted how many false messiahs there had been. How these guys would come along with charismatic personalities. Uh, They would teach. They would rise up. And they would make all these wonderful claims about themselves. Garner a huge following. And then, inevitably, they would all die. Because that is the great equalizer. Claim what you want. But when you die, you are no different than us. And Gamaliel said, these guys rose up, they did wonderful things, but then they died and all of their movement was scattered, their people were scattered, and the movement fizzled out. And death then, Gamaliel was saying, will be the proof, will be the proof that Jesus was just another false Messiah. And it looked as if that's what was happening when Jesus was delivered over to the cross. He looked very passive in it all. He looked like he had no contribution. It was out of his hands at that point. Even Jesus' disciples, who were initially convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, even they began to falter when Jesus was arrested. And you think of Peter's denial of Christ. I do not know that man. And even after the death and the resurrection of Christ, Thomas, you'll remember in John 20, verse 25, he said this, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In other words, I saw him die. I saw him die. I saw him, I heard him say, it is finished. I thought he was the Messiah, the one who would bring in everlasting peace, but now he's dead. Guys, we got to move on. We can't live in that fantasy world anymore. It's time for us to get back to it. In fact, that's what the disciples did. They went back to their work, back to their lives, whatever was left of them after they had burnt so many bridges. 
following this man who was claiming to be the Christ. We see a similar thing in the Gospel of Luke when the disciples are on the road to Emmaus. And they reported to this man who was Jesus, the resurrected Christ. They didn't realize it. But they reported to Jesus as they were walking beside him on the road to Emmaus. They said this, that Jesus had been, past tense, had been a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God, and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Notice this last phrase. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping, we were hoping then that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But now we know we were wrong and our hope is dead. All our hope is gone. It seemed that the consensus opinion was that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and said, it is finished, everyone took him to mean his life was finished. The movement was over. He had failed. He tried, but failed. And as Jesus, hanging on the cross, says those words to Telestai, it is finished. The scribes, the leaders of Israel, all who opposed Jesus were instantly vindicated. We told you guys. We tried to tell you he was possessed by Beelzebub. We tried to tell you he was no different than these other guys. But you were so foolish. What were you thinking? Yeah, we'll let you come back home. But we want you to know you were wrong. And we tried to help you. We, we told you so. You just imagine the shame on these men. As they had left everything. Businesses, lives, families to follow this man, Jesus And it turned out, as far as they could tell, that this was just another failed messianic claim. And you remember that the disciples were then scattered and tried to go back to their old lives. Their hopes were shattered. Their lives were crushed. It was a dark, dark time. But then, but then, God raised Jesus from the dead. And all of a sudden, who was vindicated? These disciples. And all of a sudden, these men who were once weak and cowardly and, and faithless were full of confidence and their spines were steeled, right? They were ready to do whatever because they knew all of a sudden that this man was the Messiah. We often fail to see what was happening when the Father raised the Son from the dead. And Paul helps us here to see it. The resurrection was God the Father's proclamation that He Himself was now fully and completely satisfied with the payment that Jesus had made. The resurrection was God the Father's proclamation that He Himself was fully satisfied with the payment that Jesus made, the payment for your sins. The card did not decline. 
It was accepted fully. The resurrection was God's way of announcing to His disciples, that cowardly band at that point who had dispersed, and to the world, that His wrath that was justly directed towards the sin of His people had now been completely absorbed in the person of Jesus Christ and His anger was absolved. There was no longer wrath to be meted out to His people. Jesus had drank the cup entirely to the very dregs. And so when Paul says Jesus was raised because of or for our justifications, he means this. Jesus was raised because He secured our salvation by His death and there was no longer any reason for Him to stay in the grave. Let me say that again. Jesus was raised because by His death He secured our salvation and there was no longer any reason for Him to stay in the grave. Mission accomplished. Now come back. Romans 5.9 says this, We are justified, not by the resurrection, we are justified by His blood. And therefore, Jesus rose from the dead because our salvation or justification was accomplished by the blood being poured out on our behalf. The blood that was shed paid the payment and there was no longer any reason for Jesus to be in the grave. So in that sense, our justification by the blood of Christ was the cause of His resurrection. Our justification by the blood of Christ was the cause of His resurrection. Because having secured our justification by His blood, Jesus was now free to rise from the dead. There's no longer any reason To be in the tomb. And in God's wisdom and in God's way, the resurrection was the great and loud proclamation that all is well for those who trust in Christ. The debt is paid, friend, if you trust in Him. And the Father Himself has received the payment. The sacrifice of the Son propitiated the wrath of the Father. And so by this propitiation, the Father is now satisfied. That's Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of His soul, the Father sees and is satisfied. The debt is paid. And the resurrection is the exclamation point on it. The debt is paid this much. The debt is paid, let me prove it to you. He's out of the tomb. So we don't need to be moping around today. Of all days, of all your lives, this is the day we remember that God the Father has paid the debt you owed. You need to feast on that today. Feast on that reality. Let me tell you what this means. Let me give you some very practical applications of this theological truth. First, Because Christ is risen, we are now justified. Which is, to put it simply, 
the proclamation. This is what justification is. It's the proclamation from the throne of God that our sins are forgiven and we are now counted righteous in Jesus Christ. I stole that from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Justification is the proclamation or declaration from the throne of God that our sins are forgiven and we are now counted righteous in Jesus Christ. That is reality. By faith, you are counted forgiven and righteous before God. That is as real as the chair you were sitting in. That is reality. Your sin has been paid for, and by faith, God looks at you as if you are exactly what you have always you are what you have always should have been. You're righteous before Him. And without the resurrection, that announcement and declaration cannot happen because the resurrection proves the payment has been made, which leads us to the second point of application. Because of Romans 4.25 and a myriad of other passages, and because of the resurrection, the Christian now lives with the reality that the payment you owed for all of your sin has been paid in full. Now, if you're yawning at that, I can tell you, you don't get it. If that makes you yawn, if you think, oh, I've heard this before. I can tell you, you don't get it yet. Let me, so let me help you. Help, let me help you try to get your arms around what that means, okay? If you trust in Jesus, then your sin debt has been paid. The sin, past sins, present sins, and all the sins you'll commit in the future, the sins you're committing right now. All of those have been paid for. And it means this. It means that God the Father will never come to you and knock on your door and say, it's time for you to pay up. Never. It also means that God the Father will never say, oh yeah, look, there's a little more wrath for you to drink from this cup. It's time for you to drink it. Will never happen. Never. It would be unjust for God to do that. It would be unjust for God to come knocking on your door demanding payment for sins that have already been paid for. It'd be like your bank coming. Oh, you paid off your $200,000 mortgage? That's great. We're so happy for you. We want you to do it again. It doesn't work that way. That's unjust. And God is not unjust. God is a just God. And He will not demand the payment for your sin to be paid twice. And if Jesus, just answer this question. If Jesus paid it all, what else is there to be paid? And I think Christians often live in fear because they think that the day is going to come when God is going to knock on their door and say, it's time for you to pay. Or He's angry with me. Friends, you must not forget that the debt has been paid and the cup of God's wrath has been drank to the dregs. And that means that there is no wrath for you 
to take. Never. I love the way the hymn writer put it. From whence this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which the Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid, whatever thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled in thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God will not twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. He won't do it, friend. The debt is paid and God will not demand Jesus pay the debt and then come to you and ask you to pay it again. And friend, if you believe that promise that your debt is paid in full, it will abolish your fear and unbelief. The abolition of fear and unbelief is to look to Romans 4.25. To look to Christ who paid the debt and counts you righteous because of your faith. So much so that He rose Jesus from the dead to demonstrate it to you. Now here's the dilemma. And I think this is why Paul couches this with Abraham as the great exemplar. All right, here's the dilemma that you face right now and I face every day of my life. It's the same dilemma that Abraham had. Abraham was called to believe the word of God, God regarding the promise of children, yet, as we saw in verse 19, when Abraham contemplated his own body, he knew that biologically speaking, this could not happen. He and Sarah were far beyond the possibility of childbirth, and the challenge for Abraham was to believe God despite the reality that was right in front of him. We have the same problem. In the same way, God calls us to believe that by faith in Christ, we are declared to be righteous, which is counter to all that we see every day of our lives. We know we are not righteous. And God says you are righteous by faith. And we look at ourselves and we say, we're as good as dead. There's no way this could be true. When we contemplate our lives, we look again and again and brought face to face with the reality that we are anything but righteous. We are sinful people. And when the Bible comes to us and tells us that we are righteous by faith in Christ, it is so hard for us to believe because we know that we are not what we should be. And so Paul, our dear brother Paul, comes along and reminds us of a couple of basics. First, that our hope, our faith, does not reside in ourselves. Verse 19, when Abraham contemplated himself, it was hopeless. Same is true for you. When you contemplate yourself and your own righteousness, it leads you to despair. It does the same thing for me. That's why I try not to do it. 
I'm better off in my life if I just do not think about myself. I'm the worst when I'm thinking about myself. That is so true. If, if I can get my eyes off of my own failure onto Christ, I can sing. I can sing, although life is hard. If I can get my eyes on Christ, if I can see that He was delivered over for my transgression and was raised because of my justification, meaning it's already over, it's already happened, then I can sing. How blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. But friend, if you run around thinking about your sin all day, that is no way to live. And you will be miserable. And I'll tell you, you'll be miserable to be around as well. So for the sake of people around you, get your eyes on the Lord. This is what saving faith does. Saving faith lifts its eyes up off of itself onto the work and the word of God. Faith looks at the resurrection and it says, wow, God has really done it. It's really over. The debt is really paid. And God saves the greatest miracle of all to be the great exclamation point on all of his work. So that I wouldn't spend my life moping around, but that I would transcend the troubles in my life and look to Christ. And to convince me further, that all of my debt has been paid. And all is well. The work is finished. Now, all I have to do, all you have to do, the work is finished. All you have to do is simply trust Him for the work. The work is finished by Christ. And all you have to do is trust His work. So it's time to take off your work gloves, get off the hamster wheel of performance, and start trusting that the work Jesus did was enough. And by faith, your debt is paid through Christ. And we want to be the kind of people. I want you to be the kind of people. I want to be the kind of person who rests in the reality that Jesus was the one who was delivered over for my transgression, but was raised because of my justification. May the Lord help us all to live there. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate that we are yours, that Christ is risen indeed. And because of that, all is well with us. The debt is paid. We are forgiven. No, oh God, would you give us, help us? Would you give faith to those who don't have it here this morning? And would you help us as your people to exercise the faith we already have on these wonderful promises we find in Romans 4.25? And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.